came across a very unique story this week, one that I had not heard before. Uh, back in the mid-1800s, there was a man named Andrew. He wasn't a man. He was a boy. Um, and his family came to America when he was 12. Uh, and Andrew was a very diligent young man. Uh, he worked uh, as best he could, and then eventually he got a job a few years later as a, uh, working in a telegraph office. But he was very dedicated to everything he did. And so in this telegraph office, he began to be able to recognize the sounds of the telegraph to where he didn't have to look on the paper to see what the message was. He could just hear the dots and the dashes coming across the machine and was able to uh, uh, translate the message. And so because he was able to do this thing, something that the actual telegraph operators themselves, most of them did not do, they hired teenage Andrew to be a telegraph operator. And so he would sit there and he would do this and he was very, very good. So good that his skill was very quickly recognized by the railroad company that was in town. And the railroad company hired him to be their telegraph operator in the, tele in the, in the railroad office. And he got a significant raise in pay, even as a teenager. Well, he worked there for a little while and uh, uh, he, he was promoted on up to manager of the whole telegraph office as a young 20-year-old something. And uh, then he was given an opportunity because the guys who, who ran the railroad recognized in him such a hard-working passion. They asked him if he wanted to invest along with them in sleeper cars, first-class sleeper cars for their train. He said, well, I don't have a lot of money, but absolutely I will do that. So he invested in this and began to bring in more and more money. And as he did, he invested in real estate. He took the money that he ha had gained from real estate and he founded a steel company. Steel, as in metal, not stealing. He wasn't a, you know, a, a mob boss or anything. He, he founded a steel company and they developed all kinds of steel for all kinds of purposes. And he went on then, as, as the years uh, passed, in 1901, he sold his steel company. And he, in that moment, when he sold his steel company, became the wealthiest man on the planet. His name was Andrew Carnegie. Even today, today, if you track all of the people who've had money throughout the history of the world, even today, he's still the fourth wealthiest person in the history of the world, even though that was 1901. But something that stuck in Andrew's mind when he sold his company in 1901, he remembered an experience he had had as a young man getting that job in that telegraph office before he was even an operator. There was a guy in town, I have his name, a guy named Colonel James Anderson. And Colonel James had a personal library in his house, about 400 books. And he would allow any of the working children to come to his house on Saturday afternoon and they could rent out or borrow one of his books from his personal library. And Andrew took advantage of this. Every Saturday, he'd bring a book back that he had read the previous week. And he would trade it in and get a new book and go. And this cemented something in him. A desire to, to see widespread education. A desire for books and libraries. And at the time, free public libraries were not a thing. And so when Andrew sold his company... In 1901, he made it his mission 
from that point on, he wanted to give away every dollar he had by the time he died as the richest man in the world. He said, this is, I've been given so much, I need to give back. And so as a result of this, he did a whole lot of things. Uh, and, and the first thing on his list that he did is he gave money to found 2,000 public libraries around the world. He had a team, and they would pick cities, and they would just give hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a facility and buy all the books they would need to fill the library. And so he founded 2,000 public libraries, in addition to a university, in addition to research facilities. Not only that, Carnegie uh, was a man who came to realize the need of faith in our lives. And he also realized the power of music. And so as he's writing check after check to found these public libraries, he begins to write check after check to churches to help these churches be able to have a music program in their church. And he sends out checks to 7,000 churches so they can all build an organ in their church. So Carnegie builds 2,000 public libraries, 7,000 organs in people's churches, in addition, again, to a research facility, in addition to a, a university, in addition to Carnegie Hall. He, he does all of this, and then he dies. So he sold his company in 1901. He dies in 1990, uh, 1919. He's extremely old, 1990. He, he lived to be 147. No, he died in, in 1919. Uh, and in 1919, he was only able to give away 90% of his money. He wasn't able to get the whole 100%. He tried as best he could, but he only gave away 90% of everything he had gained throughout that period. All with the, the thinking, the process in his mind, the thought was he wanted to give it away before he ran out of time. But he did run out of time. He believed that because he had been given so much, the only right thing to do was to give as much as he had gained, as much as he had been given. You see, Jesus encountered a very similar situation in Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today, Mark chapter 10. It's, on, it's, it's in your uh, Bible. If you use a Bible in the pew rack there, it's on page 847. Uh, 847. If you don't have a personal Bible, a physical Bible, take the Bible home with you that's in the pew. Take it. We've got others. We can get more. They're there so everybody can have a Bible. So make sure you have one of those. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, the end of Mark chapter 10. You see, Jesus is nearing Jerusalem at this point. We're going through this series. Um, we're actually going to finish the series next week. But about the journey Jesus is taking to get to Jerusalem to be crucified. He's done a whole myriad of things along this journey, always pausing, always allowing himself to be interrupted, always ministering to people along the way and teaching people along the way. Uh, because even though he's going to be crucified, everyone he encounters along the way is still important. And so here, the last week we saw he was in Jericho, and he encountered a man there who climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Then he jumped down, he met with Jesus, um, gave back uh, uh, four times as much as he had stolen. That was Zacchaeus. But now Jesus is, is leaving Jericho, and he encounters another situation. Uh, look at verse 46 of Mark chapter 10. 
And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, I just want to point something out that I find is very funny in that verse. So, Bartimaeus is the son of Timaeus. You know what Timaeus is in his name? You know what bar means in, in Greek? Son of. So, his name literally means son of Timaeus. So, it's kind of repeating itself. This is the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar who's the son of Timaeus. He's sitting by the roadside. And now, this was a common thing you would see back in the day, uh, back in first century. Uh, because if you had a disability or you were blind uh, in this capacity, you were not able to be hired to do the kind of work that they needed to be done back then. And so if you didn't have family to take care of you, then you had to resort to begging. They would line the road. If you were near enough to Jerusalem, you would go into Jerusalem and sit outside the temple, hoping that people who were going into the temple to you know, be holy and go to church, that they would then want to give uh, to beggars, and, and maybe, you know, people would think they were holier or godlier because they're, they're giving to the beggars. But this guy wasn't in Jerusalem. He was in Jericho. And he positioned himself next to the city. And uh, Bartimaeus is there just by the roadside waiting for people to walk by. And as he would hear people walk by, he would call out to them and ask them to give to him. And so that's the scenario we have. Verse 47. So people are passing by. Uh, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That title is very important. Here's this Jesus. He's heard of Jesus. He's heard of Jesus healing blind people all over the place. So he says, Jesus, son of David. He's a descendant of David. But that specific title, son of David, uh, is a title that only the Messiah would have, the Christ, the Son of God who was going to come and save the world. And so in his declaration, Bartimaeus is saying, Jesus, I know who you really are. He says, have mercy on me. Verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling to you. So keep in mind, you know, they just, they're leaving Jericho. They, or they've just been in there with Zacchaeus. They, the crowd may be anticipating something similar to what they saw with Zacchaeus. You know, Jesus, when he, when he was in Jericho, had Zacchaeus there in the tree, Jesus stopped the whole procession just to talk to Zacchaeus. And so now here he is again, leaving town, and he's doing the same thing. Jesus stops there in the middle of the road, stops the whole parade, calls or, or tells the crowd, call the man to come here. And so the crowd may be now anticipating what Jesus is going to do with this blind man. With Zacchaeus, the crowd grumbled. The crowd complained that Jesus was doing something with a man like Zacchaeus. But they don't do that now with this blind Bartimaeus. Jesus says, call him. So they call him, get up, take heart. He's calling to you. Verse 50. Throwing off his cloak... He sprang up and came to Jesus. He threw off his cloak. Now, there were many guys, commentators that I read, that spent a lot of time talking about his cloak, throwing off his cloak. Because, again, the, the typical scene in first century when you had a beggar is they didn't have a whole lot of possessions at all. Uh, if they even had a place to go and live, that was a big deal. Um, but a beggar would sit there 
and he would sometimes he would sit on his cloak and have part of it spread out in front of him so people could toss the money on the cloak. And then, particularly a blind man, then would reach out and feel around his cloak the edges, you know, where the ground was, and everything, you know, that was on the cloak, then the money that people had dropped on his cloak, he could grab and gather together. And so the fact that the man got up and threw aside his cloak, he's demonstrating, I don't need this now. He's, he's tossing aside quite possibly his most valuable possession to him to go to Jesus. He gets up, tosses his cloak aside, and he goes to Jesus. Verse 51. Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, it's a very important phrase in that verse. It's what Jesus says. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Any of you who've been here through this series, does that, does that question sound very familiar? If you look back up in the previous section, uh, verse 36 and 37, James and John come to Jesus and ask him for something. And Jesus says that, is a, that exact phrase. What do you want me to do for you? Now, James and John ask to be at Jesus' right hand and left hand in heaven. James and John asked for personal honor. James and John asked in pride. Jesus tells this man or asks this man, what do you want me to do for you? And the man's response was, let me recover my sight. Let me recover my sight. It brings to mind the verse in James, I believe James chapter 2, um, where James writes, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you, and you do not receive. Oh, I have it on the thing. Thank you, Alyssa. <laughs> I didn't even know it was in there. Uh, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, James and John asked Jesus this, this crazy request to sit on his right hand and his left in heaven. But they didn't get it because they're asking with wrong motives. They're asking with wrong motives. They're asking selfishly because it's all about them when they ask. But Bartimaeus is asking differently. He still asks this incredible thing. Jesus, I want to recover my sight. The phrasing is interesting. I want to recover my sight. So he'd had it before and lost it at some point. He says, I want it back. He's asking this big, this big request. So why is it then that Jesus is going to grant the request? Most likely the difference between the motivation of James and John and Bartimaeus was very significant. Because Bartimaeus is going to do something with his sight, something powerful with his sight. He didn't want to use it for himself. We're going to see Bartimaeus wanted to use his sight to follow Jesus. Look at verse, I lost my place. There we go, verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And followed him on the way. Followed him on the way. He'd been sitting beside the road, and now he's following Jesus on the road. He'd been by the way, and now he was on the way. He gets up, sees Jesus, sees where he can go now, having tossed aside his cloak, and he follows Jesus. Most scholars believe that's why we have his name in this passage, and we don't have the name of many other people that Jesus healed is because Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, 
became a, an integral part of the first century Christian church. And so the guys who were reading Mark chapter 10 in the first century Christian church would have known who he was because he followed Jesus and became a part with them. So he goes and he follows Jesus on the way. Jesus gave the man sight, and he immediately followed Jesus. He was given something and immediately did something incredible with it. So that begs the question for all of us, what do we do with what we've been given? We've been given a lot by Jesus. We've been, he's provided a lot for us. Not just he, financially, he's provided food, he's provided you know, a place to live, uh, you know, uh, um, a, play, a way to get around, either a vehicle or our legs. He's provided a lot, not to mention salvation, not to mention 24 hours in a day. What do we do with what we've been given? Bartimaeus knew what to do with what he'd been given. He followed Jesus without question, without hesitation. The disciples, James and John, had asked for personal honor. But Bartimaeus asked for the ability to follow Jesus. He just wanted to follow Jesus. And in his initial call to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have what? Mercy, he says. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Think, think about that phrase just for a second. He asked for mercy. He asked Jesus to give him mercy. Mercy is not receiving something you deserve. Mercy is not receiving something that you deserve. So when we get saved, you know, we are all sinners and we deserve punishment because of our sin. And so we receive mercy when we're saved by not receiving that punishment. Jesus took it on for us. But we don't just get mercy not receiving something we do deserve. We also receive grace receiving something, receiving something that we don't deserve. That's eternity in heaven. That's relationship with Jesus. Now, this Bartimaeus, he received mercy. He's calling for mercy. What he's saying in, in that request of Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he's understanding, I don't deserve to have you stop and talk to me. I don't deserve to have this interaction. I don't deserve to, to, to even be in your presence. But please have mercy on me. He didn't just get mercy from Jesus. Jesus did stop. He also received something he didn't deserve. He received healing. He received, if you look at that again, verse, where was it, 52. When Jesus said, your faith has made you well, the literal Greek says, your faith has saved you today. And so he, he called for mercy and also received grace. He called for mercy and also received grace. Mercy was requested and grace was received. The man knew in his plight there on the side of the road that, that calling for mercy from Jesus was his only hope. Was his only hope for anything in this life, in this world. He'd experienced difficulty, pain, disappointment. 
You know, his family obviously was not there or he would not have been begging them. Either he didn't have any family or his family didn't care. The government wasn't taking care of him, only took advantage of him. Institutions weren't taking care of him. That's why he was there by himself on the side of the road, begging for mercy. Similarly today, people will let you down. Your health will fail. Institutions will disappoint you. The government will take advantage of you. But there's still hope in Jesus. That's why this man was on the side of the road screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he immediately gets up and he follows Jesus. The mercy that he received didn't stay with him. Now hear me now, this is a difficult thing for some of us. The mercy he received didn't stay with him. So very often, our treatment of other people is lacking in mercy. It's lacking in mercy. You say, no, man, I'm merciful to, you know, my, my family, my kids, grandkids, my neighbors, except the one who, who, who you know, blows their leaves on my yard. I'm, I'm merciful to all the rest of them. But the thing about Jesus' mercy is this is not just limited to the nice people. Anybody who believes can receive mercy. Anybody. Even the people who are mean to you. Even the people who are not justified in how they act and how they speak and what they do. Even the people who are mean to your kids can still receive mercy from Jesus. You say, well, they shouldn't. They don't deserve it. But that's the point. None of us do. None of us do. I'm not the determiner of who should receive mercy or not. Because if I immediately become the judge of who receives mercy, then I'm disqualified from mercy. Because if I start saying, you don't need it, and you don't get it, and you don't get it, I'm at the top of the list. I guarantee you, I don't deserve mercy at all. But Jesus came along and he said, you're not the judge of who gets mercy. Jesus came along and said, I'm going to give it to anybody who wants salvation. They can get mercy. And having then, <laughs> this is where it gets complicated for some of us because we don't want it. We want people who offend us. We want people who, who are mean to us. We want people who, who do things in the wrong way. They need to receive punishment. They need to receive some kind of payback. They need to get what's coming to them. And then when something bad happens to them, we're like, hmm. It's like when they do something to us and we say, Jesus, please, you know, slash their tires. Like, nobody gets hurt. But they're hurt inside. You never maybe said that out loud? Don't raise your hand. You ever felt good when somebody you didn't like? Not that any of y'all wouldn't like anybody. Y'all like everybody, right? When somebody you didn't like, it's hypothetical. There's somebody in the world you don't like. It's just not, not for real. Just, just imagine if you can possibly think about it, somebody you don't like. And something bad happens to them. Just like a little smile begin to form on the corner of your mouth. <laughs> that's right. Honestly, that's the sin within us. We all kind of feel that way from time to time. That's not God honoring at all. 
If it were God-honoring, then we would be offering mercy without limit, without cap, without hesitation to anybody and everybody, irregardless of what they've done. Because Jesus offers it to us, irregardless of what we've done. And so if we've received mercy from Jesus, 100% without limit, it's on us then to give it without limit to everybody. And that's not easy. Amen? I can see it on some of your faces. Some of you have some people in your life right now that you absolutely don't want to be merciful to. That there's something you like to hold on to. Maybe wield it as a weapon against so-and-so. Because they did something or they said something or, or they're just unrepentant and, and, and they need to learn and they need to understand how bad it is. And you bring it out whenever the situation, situation arises and just beat them over the head verbally with whatever that thing is. And can't let it go. Can't offer mercy in that moment. But mercy that has been gratefully received is always freely given away. Mercy that is gratefully, now that, that word's key, that is gratefully received is always freely given away. You see, if you believe in Jesus, Christian, then you've received mercy. Whether you wanted it or not, you received it. If you believe in Jesus, you've received mercy. But the thing about being grateful in how you receive mercy means you understand a little bit the depth of how much mercy you've received. And if you begin to be grateful for how much mercy you've received, you cannot help but give it away. Freely give it away. Freely give it away. As often as possible, you give it away. If you begin to focus and that's the thing about being grateful. You have to focus on, on the individual thing in order to be grateful for the thing. And so to be grateful for mercy, you have to focus on the mercy and say, Jesus, you gave me so much mercy. And you give it to me constantly. I got an extra dose of it this morning. And I'm going to get some this afternoon. And you give me more and more and more mercy. And so because I received it, I need to understand and be grateful for it. And the more I understand about the, the, the expanse of the mercy, the more I have within me to give away. And the, that's it, too. The more I give away, the more I understand I have more to give away. You can't have a limited supply if you're getting your supply from Jesus. It's like when you have one kid. For some of us, it's been a long time since we had one kid. But it's like when you have one kid, and you love that kid so, so much, and you don't understand how love's going to work when you have a second kid. But it's not like love is added. It's like it's multiplied and compounded. And it, it, your capacity increases far beyond what you thought. And so the same with mercy. The more you give it away, the more you begin to understand, I've got more to give away. Mercy that has been gratefully received is always every single time, is always freely given away. So if I'm not giving mercy away to someone, then that must mean I don't really understand how much mercy I've been given by God. If I'm holding the mercy hostage and not giving it away to somebody, 
Because that's what we're doing when we don't give it away. I'm holding it hostage and not giving it to them. It's like not forgiving someone. I am not giving it. And I'm clinging to it because I don't want them to have it. I, I like feeling this bad feeling about them because they don't deserve any good feeling from me. But what we're doing in that is we're not being grateful for what God has done for us. He didn't give us mercy just to hang on to it and never give it away. He gave it to us to give away. To give away. To give away. Mercifully. As often as we possibly can. You see, the thing is, too, similar, it's very similar to, to uh, unforgiveness and harboring that within us. If we receive mercy as followers of Christ and we don't give it away, it, it, it's like we have something within us that's rotting and eating away at us from the inside out that develops into bitterness and poisons our insides. We've got to give it away. Have you ever been around, now don't raise your hand or don't point or don't elbow somebody next to you. Have you ever been around somebody who's just bitter? Like you, just, you just get around them and you feel the air being sucked out of the room. They're like a walking vacuum. They just suck it out and you just don't want to be around them anymore. We've got to give away mercy or we become that. We become that. If we don't give it away freely, as Jesus did, without hesitation, to a man calling for it, give me mercy. Give me mercy. Jesus tells us to give away mercy, to be merciful. Matthew or Luke chapter 6, be merciful as your Father is merciful. So that is our standard of how much mercy we're to give away. We're to be as merciful as God. Anybody there yet? Good. No liars in the room, at least on this. Uh, be merciful as God is merciful. That's a massive standard to aim for. But he said it again in Matthew chapter 9. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and be merciful. Go and demonstrate my heart to anybody and everybody around you. I desire mercy. I desire you to be merciful, to show my love and show what I've done for you to those around you. Go and be merciful. Don't have a cap on your mercy. If somebody comes to you and they do this, and then they come to you and they do this, and they come to you and they do this, and they come to you and they do this, you say, okay, three was enough. Number four, you're no more mercy. I'm done with you. Jesus says, no, how many times have you sinned? And I give you more and more mercy every single time. So the mercy we have received, we are then to give away. Be merciful as God is merciful. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. So our prayer should be, God, help me to get a fuller understanding of the expansive, limitless capacity of your mercy towards me so that then I can go and have mercy towards others. It takes a level of transparency to say, God, I'm really having trouble with mercy towards this one person or these five people. Or these 25 people, maybe we, some of us have a real issue. We, I'm really having trouble with mercy here, Jesus. I, I need help. 
And so then the, the prayer shouldn't be, God, fix them. They got a problem. They're messed up, Jesus. Because truth is, so am I. They may be messed up. But I guarantee you, I'm, if not as much, more so than they are. So the thing shouldn't be, God, fix them because they're messed up. It should be, God, help me understand your mercy so I can offer it. I can offer it to those who keep coming and keep saying and keep doing and won't let up. And it's just a bombardment over and over. And I just, God, I'm really having trouble with, 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 with giving mercy to so-and-so. I'm really having trouble being merciful in this situation. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Help me understand better the amount of mercy that I receive so that we can give it to anybody and everybody. And so here's the questions, two questions. Do you need mercy today? Do you need mercy today? Mercy from Jesus, maybe for the very first time. Do you need mercy today from Jesus? Because we're all sinners, all of us. You're never going to walk into a church where you don't find a whole bunch of sinners. Even if you're walking into an empty church, you walked in there, so there's at least one. And we all need his mercy. And so today, if you're here and you have not received his mercy, you have not believed in Jesus, it's not a complicated process. You don't have to pay a certain amount of money. You don't got to say magic words. You simply have to believe. Believe that Jesus is God's son. Believe that Jesus died so all your sins would be forgiven. Even the ones you haven't done yet, he's already forgiven them if you believe. And then you have to believe that he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And that's it. That's all you have to do. You do that and you're a, a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. You are a believer for all time. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're not. I'm the preacher, and I am guarantee you I'm far from perfect. Far from perfect. Far from perfect. I was frustrated this morning because the frost wouldn't scrape off my windshield fast enough. I thought, what kind of magic do is this? It will not scrape off my windshield. And I looked at my wife's car, and all the frost on her car is melted. I'm thinking, what is it about my car? And I was, I was irritated. Uh, but, already forgiven. So if you need Jesus, just believe. And I'll be down here, and I'd love to talk to you about it. Love to pray with you about it. In just a second, I'm going to pray, and, and the music team's going to come. And in that moment, come and talk to me. Come and talk to me. If you have trouble walking down the incline on these aisles, just yell. And I'll come to you. Hey, preacher, I'll come to you. I'll be listening. I'll come and find you. Maybe today, the question you'd ask yourself is, to whom do I need to offer limitless mercy? Who is it in my life, in my, in my circle? Maybe it's somebody who's in your circle that you've pushed out because you run out of mercy for them. Who is it that you need to have mercy towards today? And you need to call out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me and help me understand the power of your mercy. 
so I can give it away to people, even those who don't offer it back to me. So do you need mercy? And who do you need to give it to?